These verses conclude the list of people and events that are examples of saving faith. The preacher says in verse 32 that he's run out of time to tell of certain men's faith. But apparently he hasn't really run out of time because he goes on and does it a little bit longer. This is a lot like chapter 5 and chapter 6 when he says, you're not ready to hear this stuff. You're still too young. You're still too... Um, so what does he do? He tells it to them anyway, right? He, he, he goes right after them. It's what they need. Well, that's what he's doing here, right? He's saying, I don't really have time, but here they are. His point is surely this. He has given us enough examples to learn from. From all these people and events, we have learned of the power of faith and the effects of faith, its great value in this life and for the next. His list should also remind us that God has a continuous and numerous people of faith. The list has followed up to this point a strict chronological order. And at every point in the history, there have been people of faith. God's church is never absent from the earth. But this church is also a sizable people. Yes, at most times, perhaps in all times, the men and women of faith are a small minority. But taken all together from every age, they are a company so large as to be uncountable. God's promise to Abraham came true. And so even now, when all of the elect aren't yet brought in from everything we know, there stands before God's heavenly throne a great multitude that no man can number, Revelation 7. And you and I, if we endure by faith, we too will be counted with this people. Let's look at these verses under three headings. First, faith does have more heroes. Faith has more heroes. This is verse 32. There are seven more faith-filled men listed here. Six named individuals and one group. Now these are all well-known Israelite leaders from the Old Testament. But interestingly, at least to me, for the first time, this list is out of chronological order. There are three groups of two, and each person is actually reversed in each case. I'm not sure why this is the case. I have no deep insight into this, other than it would appear that the author here, as in so many other places in this book, is quoting from the uh, Greek version of the Old Testament, and in 1 Samuel 12, verse 11, four of these people are listed in this order. So he, I think he simply knows his Bible so well that when he thinks or preaches or writes, out comes Bible, right? As was said of Bunyan, his blood flows Bibline, right? He's got so much Bible in there, his, his blood is partly made up of the word of God. The first four men are judges who led Israel in a military fashion against their enemies. Each displayed true faith in believing God and acting on his promises to them. 
Gideon, although certainly initially doubting, imitate Gideon in his faith, not in his lack of faith or his putting out fleeces. Uh, the story's not there for you to imitate. The story's there for you to go, oh no, I don't want to ever do that, right? Gideon acted in faith in response to God's promise to save Israel through him. The story of God using Gideon and only 300 men to, to uh, defeat the Midianites is a well-known story of a victory of faith. Barak, also with a weak faith, yet a true one, obtained the military victory. And Jephthah, by faith, the Old Testament teaches us, defeated the Ammonites. And here is Samson, that great man of faith. Wait, what? Why is he in this list? How did he get in here? I mean, you've explained Rahab. That was tough enough. What in the world is Samson doing in this list? And I think it's fair that for most of us, his inclusion is perhaps more surprising than any other. Why, if we read his history in Judges, it is a litany of one disobedience after another. And the more you study it, the more sins you find. It's really rather astounding. But if we read it carefully, we also find that he did call upon the Lord in faith. He was a man of faith. And one of the ways you need to think about this is recognize that his story in the, the few stories about him in the Judges are not his whole life. They're not his whole story. They're selected truly and accurately from history to make a point, a bigger point, that there's a need for a godly king. Right? And that every man did what was right in his own eyes, even some of the judges. But the events that are listed there took a few months, perhaps even a year or two. He was a judge for more than 20 years. Right? So don't, don't think that you necessarily know the whole story of Samson because you and I don't. We simply don't. But from what's there, he, he's just a bad man. He's so confused. He does awful things, Pastor. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. And I won't say that it doesn't make me uncomfortable. I think it ought to. It ought to make us scratch our heads and, how? How could real faith actually reside in him? How? How, how, do we, how do we know that he's a man of faith? Because this verse tells us he is. And what's the primary rule for the interpretation of scripture? It's not read it, and however you take it, that's what it means. You read it and you say, does the Bible tell me how I'm supposed to understand this? From anywhere else in the word of God, is there other commentary on this? Now, you and I, if we only had the book of Judges, might say, wow, here, here was a military man. I, I don't think he actually had true faith in God. That's probably the conclusion I would come to. Well, the writer to the Hebrews says, mm, you're wrong. You're mistaken. Your judgment's off on this one. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I'm telling you, Samson was a man of saving faith. Not just faith of a lesser kind. Remember, 
the whole point of the book of Hebrews, everything he's been proving and every example is that this is true, saving, endure to the end, living by faith. So that they preserve their souls. Chapter 10, verse 39. That has to be true of Samson. Even though we have some grossly evil portions of his life, still somehow it must be true. All right? Now, David and Samuel are not a surprise because their faith and faithful actions are well known. And finally, then, the prophets are listed. These are the men who filled up the rest of the Old Testament history until about 400 years before Christ. But even after that, men and women of faith existed. And as we turn to look at some of these examples, and I won't mention, I don't think any of these in particular, but there are clear cases where what the author is referring to is something that happened after the end of the Old Testament canon and in between that time of when that last prophet came and John the Baptist and Jesus show up on the scene. There are some rebels against evil, some faithful followers of God in uh, among the Jews, and, and they had the same kind of saving faith. And some of these things happened to them. All right? Faith has heroes in every age. Parents Acquaint your children with them and others from 2,000 years of church history. Why should people without faith, who sometimes live lives even more disgusting than parts of Samson's, why should they be your children's heroes? Why do you make sports and sports figures a god to them? Why do you let that happen? You don't have to. Why, why, can all, why can so many children in Christian homes name you all 473 Star Wars characters? And I'm not opposed to Star Wars. But if, if their life depended on it, they couldn't tell you four of the 12 apostles. Why is that? Right? Well, one of the reasons is because you've not set before them the heroes of the faith. You have not said what's really important, son or daughter, is saving faith. And let me show you some men who have heroically, with a faith-rooted courage, outlasted anything and everything the world could throw at them. Give them the story of Adoniram Judson. If you don't know it, shame on you. Learn it and teach it to your children. And William Carey and a thousand others. If you did one every week for the rest of your life, you wouldn't run out of men and women of faith, right? It wouldn't happen. Not if you looked hard enough, right? Find stories of men and women of faith. Buy them if you must. Read them to them so that perhaps this will help them to imitate these men and women by God's grace. Find a children's Fox's Book of Martyrs. Parents, kids love, most kids love blood. Right? So give them some gore. Give them some godly gore. 
Be careful, of course. But there are some excellent child's versions of some of that. They should know the reform martyrs who, who paid with fire and their bodies. They, they should know some of those names. Let's go on before I just camp here for the rest of the time. Let's see, secondly, from this text that faith affects great things. Faith causes great things to happen. This is in verses 33 to 35a. You know, sometimes in the exercise of faith in this life, evident victories take place. And these verses enumerate 10 examples. Now, the first three of them pertain to the men we've just looked at. They uh, conquered kingdoms through faith. They enforced justice. That is, they righteously applied God's law in their setting by faith. They obtained promises. Now, this is, they did not obtain the final goal of all of these things, which is the promise of Jesus Christ. The next two verses, verses 39 and 40, that we'll look at soon, Lord willing, will tell us, no, they didn't receive that promise, but God gave them specific promises individually or in their context, and in all of those things, he not only gave them the promise, but he fulfilled the promise. So when he said to Barak, uh, you will defeat them if you go into battle, he did, and it came true. And every one of these men knew the promises of God come true for them. All right? The next two exploits, um, stopping the mouths of lions and quench the power of fire, are well known from the book of Daniel. Daniel and his friends um, were young men, perhaps perhaps late teens even. I mean, it, it, they could have been that young, uh, of great faith. And so God shut the lions' mouths when Daniel was thrown into their den. And when his three friends were thrown into the fiery furnace, the power of fire was quenched. Interestingly, in neither case do the scriptures overtly promise to them ahead of time that they would be rescued. Now, it's clear from the stories that all four of these men knew God could do that, but they're very clear. We don't know if God will choose to do that or or not, but we're in faith. We're committed to him to the end. It doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter if he rescues us or not. That's faith, right? That's saving faith. And so they entrusted themselves fully, body and soul, in life and in death, to God. They would not commit idolatry to save their skins. That was a trade they were not willing to make. Their faith was firm and fixed on the one true God, and so they faced imminent death with confidence. And in this case, or these cases, God delivered them. Now let's apply this to ourselves. We won't do this with every example, but let's apply this to ourselves. You know, lions and fire both do the same thing. They devour. And they are naturally frightening to us. That kind of fear, by the way, is not sinful. Of course you're afraid of falling from a great height or being in a den with lions or 
too close to a furnace, that, that's appropriate fear. But through faith, God saves his people even today from the devil, a roaring spiritual lion, and from the fires of hell. We do not need to fear however loud the roars of our enemies are. We need not fear when we are threatened with death, even hell. Because Christ, through faith, has and is and will rescue us, as Paul says, from every evil and bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom. 2 Timothy 4.18. The text goes on to say, others escape the edge of the sword. You know, Jeremiah was threatened with a sword in the Old Testament, and he escaped. And there are many examples of men and women as the text says, being made strong, being mighty in war, putting foreign armies to flight. Now, referencing the first part of verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. There are two examples in the Old Testament of women receiving back their dead by resurrection. Two widows, one in the time of Elijah and one in the time of Elisha. Each of them had a son, each of those sons died, and both of those sons were given back to their mothers by resurrection. Now, this resurrection was a return to ordinary human life, so that we recognize that one day, both of these boys again died, right? Still, this is attributed to faith, it's a great work. It's a wonderful victory. And to be received with great rejoicing, which their mothers did. So this is a real and good, but temporary resurrection. And this, along with everything else in these verses, came about by faith. So that's the second set of truths summed up. The third is this. Faith enables enduring the worst things. Verses 35b to 38. Faith not only affects great things, verses 33 to 35, it also enables enduring the worst things. Sometimes faith does not result in evident or outward success. Saving faith does always result in ultimate success. Make no mistake about it. But it does not always appear successful in this life. And there are, depending on how you count them, about seven examples of this listed. And here are believers who have endured through some truly terrible difficulties. The first example... Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Shows that not everyone who was taken and threatened with death was freed like Daniel and his friends. Daniel was. The three friends were. Others were not. Others died in similar circumstances. Some, it says, were tortured. 
And they refused to deny their God and their faith as a condition of release. They believed the promise of God that even if they died for their faith, they would rise to a better life. Do you catch again here? We've seen this over and over again in this chapter. The role that belief in the resurrection plays. These people knew and believed that there was a better, a new life to come. They believed God, that they would in their flesh see God. They believed his word of promise in this regard. And of this, they were so convinced that they were willing to die to gain the reward. They did not want the mere continuation of physical life. That in and of itself is a good thing. If it came with denying the faith. They wanted, according to verse 35, a better life. The resurrection life in the age to come. You and I need to think more like this, don't we? The promise of a future, better life in Christ should be one of the great focuses of our faith. If it is, it will strengthen us in times of trial. You and I should be studying eschatology, not so we can argue about the order of things, but so that your faith will be built up in holiness and hope, for in that way you will endure to the end and you will be saved you will obtain a better life. Your human existence now, this physical life, is a good thing. It's a gift from God. But it's not the ultimate good. Life with God is that, humanly speaking. It goes on to say, verse 36, others suffered mocking. Some of the faithful people were mocked. Recognize that this is a form of persecution. It's not hard to find at all today that when someone mocks Christianity, you'll hear others, including lots of Christians, say, oh, that's not persecution. My my Bible says otherwise. Thank you. It is. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never... You know that isn't true. That's ridiculous. Words often sting much harder, much longer, much deeper than sticks and stones. Right? Mocking is a wicked response to reject the truth. In fact, in the Old Testament, the category of mockers are one of the few that are said, if that's the way a person is, there's no hope for them. That's why you don't always have to keep answering. You don't have to keep talking or arguing with a mocker. Not according to God. You can just go, okay. I'm here if you ever want to talk again. But you don't have to keep casting pearls before swine. You don't have to do that. You don't have to do it to the point where instead of just beating you with words, he beats you with his fists. You don't have to do that. So don't downplay mocking. God doesn't hear. He includes it here. And God's truth and your faith and your obedient life to the degree that you have one, yes, imperfect, but you have one if you're a Christian, shouldn't be mocked. That's unjust. And when it is, God notices it. Now, we must not respond in kind. 
We must not mock back, but in prayer and love and words of truth. What does it say? Others endured beatings and imprisonments and death by stoning. Some were sawn in two. That's probably a reference to uh, the death of the prophet Isaiah. Uh, That's not recorded in the Old Testament, but it is recorded in several other places in writings outside of um, the Bible. It may well be true. If it isn't Isaiah, it's true. It was true of someone, because it's included here. We've already said that uh, sometimes faith delivers from the sword. Here it says some were killed by the sword. So sometimes faith brings deliverance, and other times faith delivers us to the sword. Jeremiah escaped. His fellow prophet in the same uh, book was killed by the sword. And the account ends with reminding us that believers in many ages were chased from their homes, living as impoverished wanderers for their faith. A much too poorly known example of that is what happened in France. toward the beginning of the Reformation. Hundreds of thousands of people died or had to uh, flee France uh, for their lives. (coughs) And they lived like this. Um, If you don't know anything about the Huguenots, the Huguenots, I would encourage you to read about them. Uh, It's a very sad, Hebrews 11-like story. So we learn in this section that sometimes by the plan and hand of Almighty God, the exercise of faith leads to victories in this life. And other times, by the plan and hand of that same wise and good God, the exercise of faith leads to great suffering. And yet, as real as that suffering is, Even then, faith results in victory. That's the point of this chapter. Faith endures, and if we endure to the end, we will be saved. All of these examples display the truth that regardless of what the apparent outcome was in this life, saving faith overcomes This is the victory that overcomes the world, the old hymn says, our faith. Faith is the victory. Saving faith wins. (laughs) Saving faith perseveres unto salvation. Yes, those who believe, Hebrews 10, 38, shall live, God says. And in verse 39, they shall preserve their souls. Well, let me give you several uses. First, the same true and saving faith looks different in different individuals according to God's plan. 
The same true and saving faith looks different in different individuals according to God's plan. I don't mean by this, of course, what the Bible denies, that saving faith in some people works obedience and is, in, is accompanied by endurance, and in other people who you know, have real saving faith, they lead a completely evil life and they fall away. No, that's not what we mean. <laughs> but the circumstances and outcomes in this life can be quite different in real believers. Some Christians in China are called to lose their families and lives for the faith. Most Christians in the U.S. are at least not yet called to do that. Some will win real victories for Christ, evident to all who know them. They may be the cause of hundreds of people being saved. And then others will seem to struggle into heaven by the slowest and weakest limping that you can imagine. But whether faith in your life affects great things or endures terrible things, it will gain the ultimate victory. It will. Saving faith endures and therefore gains the crown. Be assured of this. These examples aren't given for you to try harder in your own strength. Now, you, you are supposed to try harder. You're supposed to work at these things. He, he commands us to do that. But the point here is that saving faith, once it resides, it does result in these things. This is the power of God in you and me. Way beyond our own natural strength. Who could never do this? This is why we are so relieved to know that faith is a gift of God. If you actually think it's your free will that made you choose God, you should be terrified. You should absolutely be terrified. Because just like one day you believe, maybe one day you'll, you'll unbelieve. Maybe you won't have. Free. I'm not saying you didn't choose. Yes, you chose. But you didn't choose in your own strength. You didn't choose out of your old nature. You didn't choose out of your sin and deadness. You chose out of the new life God had already regenerated you into by the Holy Spirit and by his word. Free will is not just something to argue against. Free will wrongly defined. There's a right way to define free will in the Bible. But free will wrongly defined isn't just some academic exercise. It damns souls. You must hate it, brothers and sisters. <sighs> Saving faith endures because it is the work of God in you. Be assured of this. Don't, don't listen to your own heart when it tells you that your, your faith is too small and it's too weak to conquer. Yeah, by yourself. In yourself, of course it is, but that's not what we're talking about in the Bible. That's not what we're talking about in this chapter. We're talking about saving faith. Faith implanted in you forever by God. Who's stronger than God? Who's going to undo this? Who's going to beat him? If he keeps feeding the fire, the flame of faith, what, who's going to put that out? All of these examples teach us that faith wins. Because God wins. <laughs> and so trust him. Trust him. 
you know, this point, and we're, we're still in the first use, although we're almost done. Um, this point also tells us to be very careful how we judge one another. Now, I know one of the most abused verses in the entire Bible is judge not, as if universally we were never supposed to make judgments about things. Well, that, that's impossible because even taking that verse that way is a judgment about it. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very abused verse. In fact, in the chapters immediately around it, Christ commands us to make judgments about things. He uses the same word. What he means is don't make an unjust judgment. Well, that's what we need to do. We need to be very careful not to make unjust judgments about one another. It is the one in these verses who dies by the sword more faithful than the one who escapes the sword? Well, not, not necessarily. I'm not saying these folks all had exactly the same amount or level of faith, but... How are we to know that? How, how do we make a judgment about that? These scriptures say that both are exemplars of faith. They're here for us. So let us be discerning and careful in our appraisals of one another. All right? A, a second use. And this is really a reminder. Saving faith produces moral courage even unto death. And this is victory even if you die. Moral courage is a necessary outcome of saving faith. According to these verses, faith actually enables Christians to bear anything. Anything. Your own mother and father hating you and leaving you. Pain so racking that most people who have it for this long use a pistol. On and on the list could go more pertinent maybe to our day than back here. But faith enables Christians to bear anything. You say, well, if I'm gonna bear, if I'm gonna bear up under anything like this, even mockings, I'm not so good at that. I, I need more faith. O of course you and I do. That's why God invites us to ask for more faith. This is why he approves of the prayer, I believe, help my unbelief. But he doesn't just tell you to ask for more faith. He tells you to go to work and use the means whereby he gives faith. Don't just stand there and wait for him to zap you with it. Not likely to happen. Right? He's told you and me how. So yes, ask him for more of this fruit of faith. But it's time, it's time to be in earnest. As one of my heroes of the faith says, it's, it, it's time right now to be earnest about our religion. <laughs> this is the day to venture for God. And now is the time to build ourselves up in the most holy faith so that when evil days, even worse than today's evil day comes, we will stand with courage. How will you do this? By true, truly believing that God is your Father, that Jesus Christ is your Savior, and that the Holy Spirit is your helper. When you know all that God is and all that he is for you through faith, your faith will grow. It will be built up. Well, a third and final use, 
And, and in this, I want to point you to a phrase I entirely skipped over in the exposition. The final use is, believer, be strengthened by God's appraisal of you found in the first part of verse 38. It describes these folks as those of whom the world was not worthy. Wow, is right. <laughs> Those are heavy words. They're heavier than you think. Let me explain that. What's pictured here is that believers with their faith are put on one end of a scale. And the entire world is put on the other side. And guess what happens? The world is so light. It is so Madam Bubble, it is so worthless that the weight of the worthiness of the Christian and his faith crashes this down and the world just flips off the scales. Christians are so worthy that if you put the whole world together, it's not worthy of having us in it. Now, that's not just some overwrought preacher or mistaken human being. That's God's appraisal of you and me if we believe, right? That's God's appraisal. So how do you view yourself? How do you view yourself? Well, part of your self-image, this isn't everything, but part of your self-image needs to be made up of what God says about you here. Very quickly, a couple of things that this verse teaches us. That the wicked see us wrongly, and they treat us wrongly. Right? We're the scum of the earth. That's always been true. It's still true. It's becoming more evident. Like, I was even called a Nazi a couple of weeks ago. I thought the rule was on the internet, if somebody called you a Nazi, they automatically lost the argument. I, I'm pretty sure that's the rule. Apparently, my nephew didn't think so, right? Because being a, a homophobe and, a trans, and being transphobic, I deserve death. Well, you know, he doesn't have the power to do that now. Yes, he lives in California. <laughs> he doesn't have the power to do that now. He might. He might relatively soon. And I don't need to rail against him. I need to remember that it isn't what he thinks about me that constitutes my proper self-image. It's what God thinks about me. It's what he says about me. And he says, in Jesus Christ, by faith, I am worthy. Amen. I am worthy. I am weighty. Right? So you can listen to the world and what they think about you, or you can listen to God's pronouncement about you. You know, the faithful are so worthy that they bring blessing to the world. They bring lots of truly good works. They bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. They bring prayers for their enemies. They bring godly examples. The New Testament even teaches that the elect actually 
preserve the world from immediate judgment. The fact that we are here means God isn't done with the world yet. As soon as all the elect are brought in, there's, there's no need for the world to exist, the world in this form to exist, and it won't. God will burn it up with intense heat. And what will he do? He will make a world suitable for worthy ones, for weighty ones. And we will be suitable to it and it to us. You say, that really sounds pretty arrogant. Well, it would be if we thought that that's who we were by nature or that we had done this for ourselves. Do you see why free will is really wicked? Right? If, that would just be arrogant. But that's not how we got true saving faith. It's not... You know, we say faith saves us, and that's, that's scriptural thought forms. But not because our faith has such great value. It's because our faith is placed in Jesus Christ. And in him is all worthiness, all weight, all value, everything we need. Forgiveness of sins, a perfect righteousness, everything we need is in him. And so when by faith we are united to him, when we become in him... All of that becomes ours. Right? So, all of these things that are true, our great worthiness, it doesn't come from us. It comes from God. You say, oh, yeah, but it's still your faith. Yes, it is our faith, and you must exercise your faith. No one else can do it for you. Even God and Jesus don't do it for you. They give you faith, and you must exercise it. Now, if they, if they make you alive, you will live. If they give you faith, you will exercise it, right? You will make a truly free choice. You will freely will to be saved, right? But even that faith is a gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We are saved by grace through faith, and that isn't of yourselves. It, the whole thing is the gift of God. Amen. Philippians 1, 29. It has been gifted to you, granted to you, graced to you. What wonderful thing has God given us? Not only to suffer with him. Oh, I need to redefine gift. Yeah, yeah, we do. But also to believe. Your faith is a gift from God. And when he gives it, by his power, you exercise it. And you reach out and you take hold of Jesus Christ. And he becomes your savior. And all of his worthiness becomes your worthiness. And then you become like these people. The world isn't worthy of you, brother and sister. I hope you get tired of this world. I really hope you do. Because this is a wicked, fallen, terrible place. It didn't used to be that way. And one day it will be remade so there isn't any longer. But we're not made for this. In Jesus Christ, we're made for something so much better. That's the way that verse teaches us to think about ourselves. And not because of ourselves, but because of God. So, here is what faith teaches you about how to think of yourself. By the grace of faith, you've been made like your Savior. You are being made like your Savior. You will be made like your Savior. 
and God sees you this way and declares it to be true in his word. And so believe him. Believe him. Be at peace. You're safe in Jesus Christ because salvation by grace through faith is his work. Let's pray.